<laughs> if you have your Bibles or if you want to follow the TV screens, turn to Ephesians 1. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1 is basically divided into two sections. First section, Paul blesses God for the great spiritual blessings he gave us in Christ. That's verses 3 to 14. And if you never read that, you need to read that. That is a great idea of what God has given us in Christ. And secondly, which we're going to look at tonight, Paul prays to God that our eyes would be open and we would grasp the fullness of these blessings and learn how to implement them. That's versing, verses 15 to 23. Now, I don't know, I'm not superstitious or anything like that, but Brian got up and he didn't know what I was preaching on. Neither did my wife know what I was preaching on. And she played a song that exactly has to do with this scripture and then Brian gets up and quotes the very scripture that I'm preaching on tonight. I don't know how that happens, but I, I have a feeling that the Spirit of God is in this. Let me just let me find something. Here it is. So let's read our text, Ephesians 1. After Paul gives us profound thesis on the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Now he says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated at about his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. And Father, as the opening prayer stated, as the opening song stated, open the eyes of our hearts. Enlighten us, Lord. We need Christ. We need a deeper, more intimate knowledge of Christ. But more than that, God, we need an experiential knowledge of Him. Work through the preaching of your word in the hearts of your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Sun Herald of Mississippi in 18 or 1989 wrote One woman died leaving an estate of $350,000 to her relatives while she had been living in a rundown house, rummaging through trash bins and dressing in ragged clothes. She had grown up poor and worked 39 years at a low-paying job. 
However, during those years, she amassed an estate of several hundred thousand dollars. Yet she died malnourished, refusing to spend some money on food. All too often, we hear stories of people who have died with substantial wealth, but had lived the last years of their lives like paupers because they were afraid to tap into their resources. And Christians, too often, are like this woman from Mississippi who has the greatest spiritual resources, but they never use them. Unlike this woman who knew she had this large amount of money and refused to use it because of fear, many Christians don't use their resources mainly due to ignorance. Not fear, but ignorance. Well, Paul, Paul's prayer in our text tonight is to beseech God to enlighten the Ephesians and us, this was written to us as well, the deep insights of the spiritual realities we have in Christ and eliminate ignorance. But not only eliminate ignorance, but also to understand these realities and experience them. You and I need to continuously pray for others and yourselves that God would increasingly give you a deeper understanding of the spiritual realities you possess in Christ. And not only to understand it, but to experience it. Now Paul, who was in prison in Rome when he wrote this epistle, more than likely addressed the Ephesians, not for any specific problem, but to encourage, unite, and inform the believers in that area. Interesting, there are numerous similarities between the letter to Ephesians and the letter to Colossians, if you ever read both of them. Uh, Paul's co-worker, Tychicus, delivered both letters, which suggests that they were written from the same place and to encourage and admonish believers in these areas of the immeasurable blessings in Christ. And Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this prayer that Paul the Apostle prayed is a response to the great proclamation of the theology, as I said before in, in verses 3 to 14. You need to go home and read that. We don't have time to read all that. But Paul just finished one long sentence. Verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. And this long, wonderful sentence declares to us what you and I possess in Christ. What God in Christ has given us. And it gives the idea of election. It gives the idea of sonship, redemption, revelation, and inheritance. Now these truths in verses 3 to 14 are really beyond our ability to understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, these truths cannot be known externally or even internally what God has prepared for those who love him. However, verse 10 says, These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So in order for us to understand what we possess in Christ, we must depend on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives illumination to our mind as we read his word. Never read the word of God divorced from the Holy Scriptures. Or divorced from the Holy Spirit, I should say. So Paul, after expounds 
If he expounded these great spiritual realities that are ours in Christ, he now prays that we would understand these truths. It would do us no good to know them and not understand them. Because if we don't understand them, how on earth can we actually live them? So many Christians are frustrated trying to live the Christian life that they don't understand. And I don't think Paul is telling about filling the Christian's mind with knowledge and understanding, but he's praying that the understanding of the knowledge will be empowered to live it. We would have that power to live it. And before I get into the meat of this prayer, let's look at the first point of the text, which I will not spend much time on so we can get into Paul's prayer. The first point is Paul did not cease to thank God for the Ephesians. Verse 16 again, it says... Paul the Apostle, this is, great, this is his great pastoral care for the Ephesian church. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And I want you to know something. That's the heart of a pastor. And I can say this firsthand. I hear Pastor Brian constantly thanking God for you. Constantly. And you and I should always thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Too, much time, too many times where at each other's throat and criticizing each other. Instead, we should be thanking God for the brethren. And why did Paul give thanks for the Ephesians? Did he just randomly give thanks, or there's a particular reason? It's clear in verse 15, there was a particular reason. The first reason Paul thanked God is, number one, is because of their faith in Christ. Their faith was genuine belief, and the object of their faith was the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not only believe in Christ as Savior, but His Lordship as well. Their faith was grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is your heart filled with gratitude towards God for one another's believers' faith in Jesus? Let it be. Let it be. Paul not only thanked God for their faith, but also thanked Him on a regular basis for their faith. And it was customary in their day to pray three times a day. So Paul, at this point, probably prayed three times a day for the Ephesians, thanking God for them. It's customary in our day and age if we could barely fit in a prayer a day. We need to pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. second reason why Paul thanked God for the Ephesians was because of their love towards all the saints. They had a great love for one another. That's what I preached the last time when Jesus said, Love one another just as I have loved you. And genuine love does not discriminate, folks. Believers love what Christ loves. And he loves all believers. In other words, we love the saints with the same love Christ has for them. Genuinely and sacrificially. We don't have the time to fully describe what genuine Christian love looks like. But it's genuine and sacrificial. Actually, I did preach on that two weeks ago. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers whoever does not love abides in death the Ephesians were very much alive because they love they had for all the saints do you love the saints today do you thank God when you see the believers loving and caring for each other you know we we thank God I was fishing this morning and my son and I caught a couple of nice striped bass and I was thanking God for it but the great, no, it was fun. <laughs> but we should be thanking God more for you, the saints, the believers, the universal church of Christ. Faith in Christ and love for the saints are earmarks of genuine salvation of the believer. 
Howard Hona, in his commentary on Ephesians, said, A proper relationship with God should lead to a proper relationship with other Christians. And what he's basically saying is, if our relationship is not right here, it'll never be right here. If it's right here, it'll be right here. Up to the point in my conversion in September 1978, the only thing I was thankful for was if someone gave me something, did something for me, or shared something with me. I would thank them. I thanked my parents when they gave me something. I had, I'd still have a good sister and brother, but I assure you, I didn't say thank you mother and father for the, the love of my sister and brother that they have for each other and, and for me and, and the respect we have for you due to your wonderful upbringing. No, I didn't say that, but maybe I should have. And more importantly, thank God for the love in my family. The only thing I thank God for was the food I ate and the prayers I said during church service. And honestly, that was kind of mechanical. Now, redeemed by God, I have reason to thank my Lord for you. And you need to unceasingly think and praise God for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just thank God for you and what he has done for you and given you, but for the others in the church. When you do this, you will be more inclined to do as Philippians 2 verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If you can genuinely thank God for the saints, faith in the Lord Jesus, and their their love for one another, you will have no problem putting their interests above your own. So Paul gives thanks to God for the Ephesians' faith and love, which prompted him to pray this marvelous prayer for them. Now even though Paul gave unceasingly thanks to God for them, he is still not satisfied with them. He knows they could still go further. And second point, Paul prayed for the Ephesians. So what is his prayer for them? That they get a new car? That they get a new job? That their marriage is, is good? That they're healed? That they get the second blessing? No, he didn't pray any of that. He prayed for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Amen. You and I need to pray to know God deeper and more intimately. We need to pray for each other that we know God more deeper and intimately. Listen to verses 16 and 17 again. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. It is tragic that many believers look for more than what they already have in the Christian life. They want more of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessing, deeper this and a deeper that, implying that at salvation God withheld some blessing from them. Listen carefully. God, through Christ, gave you everything. You will not receive more blessing or inheritance that you already have. Paul did not pray for more. Rather, he prayed that they understand and appropriate to the fullest what they already have. Get that? Verses 3 to 14, we're not going to look at that, tells us what we have in Christ. And Paul, in essence, now prays that they understand what they have and begin to use it. The Apostle Peter also understood this. In chapter 1, verses 3 of his first epistle, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
What exactly does Paul pray for the Ephesians? He prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul directs his prayer to God, to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, God who deserves all the glory. The Father of glories is a term influenced by the Old Testament. Also, Paul calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this statement does not diminish Christ's divinity one bit. Jesus Christ, the Son, is and always will be as much God as the Father. In essence, in nature, in being, He is equal in power, sovereignty, authority, and so on. However, in this statement, the God of our Lord Jesus is referring to His humanity as the Son who voluntarily submits to the Father. He was equal with the Father, but He voluntarily submitted to the Father. The phrase, the spirit of wisdom, is debated. Is Paul speaking of the human spirit, the Holy Spirit, or spirit in the sense of attitude? Well, believers already have a human spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.11, and they possess the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, or he could be speaking about an attitude. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and like our English word spirit, pneuma is sometimes used as a, of a disposition, influence, or an attitude. For example, we might say, he confessed in a spirit of self-respect, not defiance. And Jesus also used the same word in Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it could possibly mean that Paul prayed that the Lord would give the Ephesians a disposition of wisdom, an attitude of wisdom. In any case, wisdom is given through the Holy Spirit that touches the human spirit to create the right spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now what does it mean to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well first, let's define wisdom. Wisdom comes from the Greek word Sophia, like the, like the name Sophia, and carries the idea of prudence, discretion, that is, the capacity to understand and therefore act. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis and means what is revealed, a disclosure. In other words, Revelation deals with God's imparting knowledge to you, and wisdom is the use of that knowledge. You act upon that knowledge. Wisdom gives you the understanding, in other words, you get the understanding, God gives you the understanding of how to use that Revelation knowledge. That's what Paul prayed for, that they would understand and be able to act upon it. What good is knowing something and not, be a, not understanding something, I should say? You'd never be able to act upon it. In essence, Paul was speaking that, asking God that the Ephesians would grasp who they are and what they possess in Christ and use it. When I was 14 years old, I started playing the drums. and My parents gave me my first drum set. However, I, was lim- I had limited knowledge on how to play. Approximately five years later, I began drum lessons. Now, it did me no good if the instructor put the drum chart in front of me and said, now play. I didn't know what I was looking at. No, he had to explain to me, John, these are quarter notes. This is what they look like. These are eighth notes and these are sixteenth notes and so on. They all look to me like just black and white. But then my instructor started to explain what they are and how to play them. John, this is quarter notes. One, two, three, Four. John, this is eight notes. One and two and three and four. And, and John, this is 16 notes. One and a two again. Get the picture? You see, I first had the knowledge. Then I understood. And then I was able to put it into practice. 
And some of you may be thinking, but where do I get this revelation, this knowledge? Does it just pop into my head by osmosis? No. We get our revelation from the pages of Scripture. That's where we get our revelation knowledge. Wisdom then becomes the practical ability to understand Scripture and apply its truth to our daily lives. So every one of us needs revelation. Today it's not really called revelation because revelation is God's word. It's called illumination. So we need illumination of the Scripture from the pages of Scripture. And then we need the wisdom. How to apply its truth to your daily life. Revelation comes first or illumination. Then wisdom. It has to be in your mind and heart before you can live it. And why? For what purpose should we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, look at verse 17 again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What's the purpose? That you will know God better. Paul wants his readers to have a full, deep, intimate Intimate knowledge of God, more than intellectual knowledge, but much richer and deeper than they already had. You can be a Christian and still have a shallow knowledge of God. Let me ask you, do you desire to know Him more? Philippians 3.10 Paul knew God. Paul knew his son Jesus Christ deeply and intimately and listened to him. Listen to his prayer. This is Paul, the great apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament. He already had a deep, intimate knowledge of Christ. And listen to what he writes. He makes this a sounding statement that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering and become like him in his death. And Paul already knew Christ deeply and intimately, but his greatest desire was to know even more of him. Is that your greatest desire? That's my greatest desire. To know more of Christ. I know and love my wife. However, I want my knowledge and love for her to grow deeper and more intimate. I have all of her as my wife already. That's not going to change. She's not going to become more of my wife. However, my knowledge of her and love for her will go deeper. You already have all of Jesus. Every one of you that are Christians. And all the spiritual blessings that come with salvation. You already have that. Ephesians 1.3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. With every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Past tense. You already have it. You're not going to get more of it. Learn to appropriate it. Pray for yourselves and the saints that you will know him in a deeper and more intimate way. That's what God desires for his church. Make no mistake about that. Paul continues his prayer for his readers. Spiritual understanding, verses 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. This is the third point and the final point. The reason Paul prayed for the Ephesians to come into a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God. He wanted them to know three things. The hope 
to which he has called them? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And the deeper and more intimate knowledge you have of God, the more you will know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. And Paul prays to God that the eyes of his readers' hearts would be enlightened. And Paul is using an Old Testament uh, expression here. In Psalm 19, verse 8, the psalmist says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Paul is praying that they have spiritual insight, that they can take hold of the truth of God's purposes, the hope to which he has called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and immeasurable greatness of his power. He wants them to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, Ephesians 4.23, where they once were darkened, Ephesians 4.18. He wants them to be renewed and enlightened. So the reason he prays for spiritual insight is so that they may know three things. The hope to which he has called them. Because God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, you have this blessed hope, not just now, but for all eternity. And this call is not dependent on your goodness, but on God's divine grace. Paul in essence said, I pray that they understand what you have planned for them. You elected them, you redeemed them, and promised them an inheritance. You called them before the foundations of the world. This is not an afterthought. He called you before the foundations of the world. The Christian who does not know his calling will never be able to walk worthy of that calling. And please meditate on chapter 1 this week if you can, especially on chapter, uh, verses 3 through 14. Get to know what God has called you and what you possess in Christ. When you read that and you understand that, you're going to say, wow. So Paul wanted the Ephesians to know the hope to which God has called them. And secondly, he wanted them to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is debated what what it means, uh, the saints' inheritance. Or is that God's inheritance or the saints' inheritance? And based on 14, which says who is a guarantee of our inheritance in Colossians 1.14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Based on those two, two verses, most scholars say this is speaking of the inheritance God will give us. However, the text does say, verse 18, and by the way, it wasn't most scholars, just some scholars. Verse 18 says, His glorious inheritance, not the inheritance He bestows on the saints, And therefore, it's probably better to understand this as the saints, that we are God's inheritance. Now, the saints do have an inheritance. We also have an inheritance. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. Christians inherit everything Christ inherits, everything Christ has. Everything Christ has by divine right, we receive by divine grace. And I can't begin to comprehend that. I don't know about you. However, in this context, as the saints of God, the church is his inheritance. We are his possession. And I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, we not only have an inheritance in Christ, but we are an inheritance to Christ. 
Just as a man's wealth brings glory to his name, so God will get glory from the church because of what he has invested in us. When Jesus Christ returns, we shall be to the praise of his glory, of his grace. Ephesians 1.6 You belong to Christ forever. You are his chosen people and have been claimed by him as an inheritance. You are treasured by Christ and will be redeemed by him completely when that final day comes. Thirdly, Paul wanted them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Let's read 9, 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come or the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First, Paul wanted them to know that they possess in Christ, all that they possess in Christ, in order to appropriate this vast wealth they needed. They needed God's power, obviously. We are too weak to use what we have. Second, they needed God's power to defeat the enemy of our souls or their souls. The devil would like nothing more than to rob us of our wealth in Christ, wouldn't he? We need to be not unaware of his schemes and rely on God's divine power to overcome him. And Paul uses four different words for power, emphasizing God's activity in people's lives. I'm not going to go into all the different Greek words and their meanings. However, I'll tell you this. This power is supernatural. It's energizing. It's mighty. It's strong. And it's powerful. In other words... God's Holy Spirit empowers all believers to live for Him, overcome the devil, the world, and the flesh, and assures us of the realization of our eternal hope. Don't you think that deserves an amen? amen. Okay. I mean, it's not for me. This is, this is for us. You know, this is who we have in Christ. This is what God gives us, and He gives us the power to live it out. In other words, God's Holy Spirit empowers all believers to live for Him, overcome the devil and the world and the flesh. And I've read that already. And assures us the realization of all eternal hope. Say that again. Amen. Okay. This power is available to you and to me. This is the same power, believe it or not, that raised Christ from the dead. You know that the spirit that you have living in you is the same spirit, same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In the Old Testament, the saints measured God's power by his creation, or when God delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea, but today we measure his power by the resurrection. We have the resurrection of power residing in us. Also, it was more than raising him from the dead. The Spirit's power also ascended Christ to God the Father's right hand, where he is seated in sovereign power right now. This is the same power that put all things under Christ's feet. This is the same power you have living in you. you. This is the same power that helps you to live out Ephesians 1. Christ is exalted far above all authority, all power. We're human, 
or in the spirit world, and no one will ever overcome him. Let's read um, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Same power lives in you. Doesn't make us divine, doesn't make us God, but God just gave us his power to overcome the things in our lives and to live a victorious life. And this is the same power that appointed Christ over the church. The church is so identified with Christ that she is called his body, just as Adam described Eve as bone of my bone and flesh as my flesh of my flesh, and man and wife as one flesh. Christ is not only the head of the church, which is his body, but he is head over all things to or for the church's benefit. Francis Folks said, the church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because a leader and head is Lord of all. You and I have the same power, once again, that raised Christ from the dead, that put all things under his feet, that appointed Christ head over the church. If you belong to Christ, we have the same power, once again. It doesn't mean, once again, you and I will be physically raised from the dead, or you will be head over the church, and God is going to put all things under your feet. No, that's not what it means. It means the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for your daily lives. Amen. Lastly, verse 22 and 23 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now there's two basic views on this. first one is, Christ is willingly incomplete until his church is complete. In other words, the church is the fullness of Christ until Christ finds the fullness from the church. John Calvin agreed with that. In a marriage, a wife completes the husband. Adam needed a suitable helper, so the Lord created Eve from his rib. Thus, Adam was complete, right? That's one view. Christ gets his fullness from the church. Until the end of the age, that's when he'll be full. That's one view. Second view is basically that Christ fills his church. Christ is the fullness of God who fills all things and the church draws from his fullness. And I think this view is probably the better way to understand verses 22 and 23 because my understanding at this point is nowhere in the New Testament does Christ find his fullness from the church. Even though that's a good view, I don't think it's the proper view. Listen, because Christ fills us with himself, we are representatives of him. Christ is the head of all things for the church. The church is his body, and we are to express him in the world. And the reason we, we can be the full expression of him is because he fills us. Let me conclude with this. Paul thanked and prayed for God's flock. He was deeply concerned and they knew what they possessed in Christ. He was deeply concerned and they understood what they possessed in Christ. He was deeply concerned that they understood that they had Christ's resurrection power to live for Christ. He was deeply concerned that they understood all these things. 
And his deep concern resulted in a consistent prayer for the flock of God. Let me ask you this. Do you know and understand what you possess in Christ? The abundant blessings, the ultimate and unlimited resources. Do you understand that? Do you know that you have all things that you need and there is nothing more? That you have everything that Christ has given you. You have everything. There's really one thing that you need and I need. To know and understand what you possess, which are spiritual resources and resurrection power to use those resources. You have it already. And Paul's prayer was, I want you to use it now. And he was trying to make the Ephesian church aware that they had the power to use it. You know you have all you need and there's nothing more. But yet, we still hear people pray more, more, more of what? God, give me the power to use what I have already. There's only one thing you really need to know. To know and understand what you possess, which are the spiritual resources and the resurrection power to use those resources. This will lead you into a deeper and more intimate experiential knowledge and understanding of God. So what do you do? You pray. And you ask our gracious Lord for a greater understanding of Him. A greater understanding of what you have in Christ. And a greater understanding of the power you possess to live for Him. And pray this not only for yourselves, but also for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. You need to pray for them. I'll end with this story. Warren Wisby again. Tells the story. On January 6th, 1822, the wife of a poor German pastor had a son never dreaming that he would one day achieve world renown and great wealth. When Heinrich Scheinman was seven years old, a picture of ancient Troy in flames captured his imagination. Contrary to what many people believe, Heinrich argued that Homer's great poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were based on historical facts, and he set out to prove it. In 1873, he uncovered the ancient site of Troy, along with some fabulous treasures which he smuggled out of the country, much to the anger of the Turkish government. Shalman became a famous wealthy man because he dared to believe on the ancient record and act on his faith. Do you dare to believe the ancient record and act on, on this by faith? Let's pray. God, help us to remember... And help us to discover that we were born rich when we trusted in Christ. But that's not enough. But we need to grow in our understanding of our riches. Help us with this God. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.